When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello everybody and welcome to the show. It's made possible by our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today, we're joined by a man who once stood on one of cycling's most celebrated steps when he won the prestigious green jersey at the Tour de France. From country Victoria, Baden-Cook's finishing speed saw him become affectionately known as the Benalla Bullet over a 14-year, 39-win career in the Pro Peloton that, of course, included a trip to the Olympic Games as well. These days, he may be just as recognisable for his stint on reality TV show Survivor. Baden, Hello, thanks for joining us. Hi guys, thanks for having me on the show. We thought with the world's best cyclists currently waging their three and a half thousand kilometre battle in this month's Tour de France that we better get you on. Does this time of the year stir glorious memories or painful ones or both? Oh, I mean, it's certainly I, I, when I see the action and I see how um, certainly in the sprint stages how vicious and, and how hard these guys are racing for the win, it does really stir a bit of emotion in me because I... Yeah, that's what I used to love about the sport, how how determined and how strong these guys wanted to race for the win. Um, I do I do have a short memory, but I do remember how hard it was. So I, I do also remember what they got, these guys are going for. It's that you know I might wake up in the morning and watch the last ten k's, but uh, there's a there's a lot that goes into it to get to that last ten k's to be involved in all the excitement. It's not it's not even the two hundred k's before it. It's the it's the two or three years leading up to it that these guys have been training so hard to be able to be there fighting for the win. And just while we're talking this year's race, we're talking as Wout Van Aert holds the yellow jersey. Now you we can't pigeonhole you as a sprinter because you were more than that. You were a bit more rounded than that. Wout Van Aert though, do you just marvel at the tricks he's got in his trick bag? Because there's seemingly nothing the Belgian can't do. Yeah, he's a freak of nature, really. Um, he's he's quite incredible and. And not just him, but the guys that he's racing against. When you look at the the talent in this in this era, we're all in the same you know race. You got Van der Poel, Sagan, and Van Aert, for example. They're they're all once in a couple of generation riders, and they're all in the same generation. It's it's, it's quite amazing. It's sort of it's a bit like Federer, Nadal, and uh, Novak. Um, uh, Novak in the same. Yeah, you know, these are all tennis players that could be once every 50 years come along, but they're all at the same t- playing at the same time. Uh, and I, I sort of tend to feel, you know, you never, you never think that so quickly you'd have someone that could be considered in the same realm as Sagan. And you've got a couple of them all mm-hmm. there. 
Mm. And uh, it's, it's quite amazing. And, and I think Van Aert is, um, you know, him and Van Der Poel have come through the ranks at the same age, same time. They're, they're fierce rivals. And what what a treat we're going to have for the next 10 years watching those guys go head to head. Um, you know, it's going to be, uh, you know, a bit like Cancellara and Boonen, Museo and Van Pettigam back in the day. They're just, cut, they're just, they're so good. Uh, it's going to be so exciting. And who, who knows which one of them is better. But um, I, I, I'm big fans of all of them. I, I, I race with Sagan I didn't race I might have raced no I only raced Van Art or Van, Van Der Poel, but these guys are just absolute monsters and uh, I think we're all privileged to be able to watch them in action well that's now but I want to take you to a tour nearly two decades earlier and a date July 27 2003 Ville de Vray, just outside Paris 20th and final stage of the Tour de France now you'd won some big races and big stages by this point in your career but this was the race where I suppose you'd really captured the world's attention now, you trail compatriot Robbie McEwen by two points in the fight for green. The equation is simple, isn't it? Beat Robbie on the Champs-Élysées, win the jersey. How vivid are the memories of the day, babe? I can remember basically every pedal stroke, every breath, every corner, every gear change from that particular day and basically that tour. People talk about being in the zone. I, at the time, I didn't know what that was and I can only sort of now sort of figure that I guess that's what it means when you're in the zone. Um, I'd done other races in the past where I was not going well. And I, for example, say I did the Tour of Ireland one year and I was going really badly or I was in the zone. I can't even, rem- I can't even remember being in the country, let alone <laughs> what happened in the race. Yeah. But, but when I was in the zone or whatever you want to call it, that particular Tour de France and that day you're speaking of, the last day of the 2003 Tour de France, I remember, and I remember everything I said. I remember what I thought. I remember what I was thinking. I remember everything and it's it's quite it's quite amazing am i right in saying that you were totally relaxed though now whether it's urban legend or it's had mayo put it on over over time and i'm sure it has but were you actually late to the start on the final stage this is a, a story uh, a good friend of mine john trevorrow has certainly uh <laughs> i wouldn't say he's exaggerated it but he's ma- he's made it sound a, 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 a lot a lot better of a story than it was but Basically, I was in my second Tour de France where I was, you know, my first Tour de France, I popped up and I got fourth in the green jersey, but I was still relatively unknown and I certainly wasn't one of the big names But to to anybody else. But to me, I was a big name and to me, I was a favourite and to me, I was going there to win the next year. And, um, but no one else really (laughs) knew that. Um, I had led the green jersey for, I think it was about nine days throughout the main part of the tour. And, you know, Robbie McEwen had won the race the year before. And then, and he was the, he was the, like the superstar at the time. He was winning uh, multiple stages in, in every Grand Tour he went in. Um, and he was an established super sprinter. A couple of days to go, he sort of had got a bit of momentum going and he'd taken the, the, the jersey off my shoulders, which I'd been, I had held for, for roughly nine days. And I, I, start, I was starting the last stage two points behind him. He had the momentum he had the experience and he had probably, I would say, most um, people that knew anything about the sport or, or um, tipsters or, or you know, anyone who's betting on it would have put their money on McEwen to win or, or to 
because because all he had to do really was follow me around. He mm. had the advantage of being able to follow me, and all he had to do was beat one person in the race. He just had to follow my wheel and beat me. And being such a, a quick and crafty guy, that should have been quite straightforward for him. As far as the, the being late to the start goes, um, my director at the time, Mark Matteo, I was in the number one French team, La Française de Jure, or it's now called FTJ.com or, or FTJ.com in English. Um, he said to me, whatever happens, happens. You're, you're 23. Um, just go out there and give it your best. But for, for us, for, for especially for a French team who have led the green jersey, having won a stage myself, you know, I'm so young. He said, Aiden, you've, you've, you've won in our, in our eyes. We're more than happy with you. Don't, don't have, feel any pressure. Whatever happens, happens. Uh, you know, you've got a long career ahead of you. And, and, and he sort of, I was fit. I had been putting a huge amount of pressure on myself. Actually, I was the only person putting pressure on myself. My team was very, very relaxed. But he sort of reiterated the last stage, just go out there and do your best and see what happens. Mm. And I was sort of sitting back at the back of the bunch because until this point I'd been wearing the green jersey so I had to line up on the front row each day so that all the cameras could uh, you know, film the four jersey wearers um, so every day I'd been lining up on the front row next to Armstrong and, and Varenk and I think it was Dennis Menchoff was in the white jersey and this because I had had the jersey taken off me a couple of days out I did I wasn't obliged to start anywhere in the bunch so I was back back down the back of the group I was actually not even in the bunch. I was I was talking to John Trevorrow, sort of behind the cars, just having a chat to him, telling him the two um, the two PMU um, uh, uh, podium girls that had been giving me the, the jersey each day, how cute they were, and how I was uh, uh, sort of trying to build up the confidence to ask ask one of them out. <laughs> and um, and uh, anyway, he the, the 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 gun went off, and the bunch did roll out, and I was. Yes, a couple hundred metres behind the back of the bunch, still chatting to John about the PMU girl. However, um, I knew I had... He makes it out like I was I missed the start or something, but <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I knew where I was at. I knew I knew that um, the start of the stage, especially the start of the last stage in the Champs-Élysées, starts very slowly. And um, yeah. I was very quickly back in the bunch and uh, there was uh, there was no chasing or any anything to be alarmed about. So his, his story has sort of been a little bit exaggerated. Lance would have been sipping on champagne well and truly after you'd rejoined the bunch. So you beat Robbie in the first intermediate sprint to level the points, I think. Then he got you in the second intermediate to take the lead back. It's so tight. So it comes down to the Champs-Élysées. The, the, and the drag down that street, I guess, is unofficially known as the Sprinters' Championship. I mean, huge at the best of times and every fast man wants to win there. So let alone with the green jersey on the line, this is absolutely huge. And Baden, it comes down to centimetres. In fact, there's a great photo of you and Robbie shoulder to shoulder at the finish. You know, some hip and shouldering the AFL boys would be proud of. Yes, well, my team and I knew that Robbie was a bit quicker than me how, and I was better when when you when you sort of make the sprint longer and harder and if the stage was harder. So the harder the stage, the, the more it was sort of fell into my hands. So Robbie sort of wanted to and he actually asked me to not worry about going for the intermediate sprints and we'll just leave it all to the, the final sprint. So that it would and, and it would have given us had we done that, I probably would have won the stage and he would have got second and there'd be the same result on the green jersey. Because but um as it was I said to him, no no we're gonna sprint for every sprint and um which yeah, puts us at a disadvantage 
against the other sprinters who aren't doing intermediates. But um, I knew that for me to beat him, I needed him to be as tired as possible. So the first the first sprint, I remember we stitched him up pretty well. I had a really good lead out from uh, Brad McGee and my other Francaise de Jure teammate. And um, because the Champs, the Champs is 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 slightly, it's probably one or two percent uphill gradient. It's a bit of a false flat we call it in cycling. And um, but on the in the very edge of the road is is a, a smooth concrete gutter so i got my guys to put us in in the far right gutter so i was sprinting on the smoother um, surface which is great but you also risk um clipping your, your pedal on the edge of the gutter and knocking yourself off but um the first one we sort of nailed it quite well so now the scores are, are even and if we had ended the the competition at that moment i would have won on a count back even though we had the same points because i'd won a stage and he had in the second intermediate we stupidly just used the same tactics we did we should have um you know mixed it up done something different and he was all over it and he got the jump on me and and he's easily beat me giving himself a two-point advantage again um then when we come to the final sprint uh you know the point differences are greater at the end of the end of the race than they are in the intermediate so if we were at the the point you know in the first five of the stage um the points gaps were big enough that basically whoever robbie and i crossed the line first won the green jersey so after three and a half thousand kilometers after 21 days of racing after battling tooth and nail for three weeks came down to him him having the advantage of following my wheel and all he has to do is beat me across the lot you know we came around that last um that the last corner onto the champs uh and the, and, the, and the, the year before on the same same finish the same same stage i had, i had hit out early and um and got second to robbie and here and here i am again uh coming around the last corner hitting out early with Robbie on my wheel, and no Australian in in 110 years had ever won any jersey in the Tour de France until the year before, when Robbie was the first Australian ever to win a win a jersey in the Tour de France. And here is two Australians fighting it out the very next year for the second time it had it happened in 110 years. So I hit out. You know, Robbie and I um, sort of bumped into each other a couple of times up up the final straight, and then it came down to a, a throw a throw of the arms to to um. Uh, throw our bikes over the line and we were basically holding each other up um, from falling over because we were leaning on each other. Here comes Cookie with his pitting of his teeth and McEwen is going with him and McEwen is coming on the right. McEwen is going to get win number three beaten on the line. Jean-Patrick Nazon. And look at this charge for the line here right up through the middle. The pink jersey is Jean-Patrick Nazon. And you know, oh, Phil, it's photo. We have to look at it from the side. It's going to go between Baden Cook and Robbie McEwen. If Baden Cook is second, Robbie McEwen's third, then the result of the king of, of the king of the sprints is going to go to Baden Cook for one point. There's a lot of rivalry between them because they oh, were yeah. banging themselves together in the last few hundred meters. In fact, I thought Cookie was going to go down and he was leaning right onto the shoulder of McEwen. We're getting confirmation right now that Baden Cook has won the points competition by two points. And uh, yeah, after three and a half thousand kilometres, I won. I won the green jersey by literally five centimetres. Five centimetres that would change your life forever, as well. It's fair to say. You're listening to this is your journey. It's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Benalla is a long way from the Champs Elysees. We're going to start Baden Cook's incredible journey from country Victoria to the European cycling elite. Right after this, you're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Journey, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're chatting to Tour de France Green Jersey winner Baden Cook. Cookie, what, what was childhood like and, and what sort of kid were you? Did you walk on the wild side a bit as a youngster? Um, I was an absolute pain in the butt um, and I was I was a huge handful for my poor parents. I, I came from a great family. Uh, I had a great upbringing in Benalla, which is a a great place to, um, I feel blessed to have, have grown up in such a beautiful little country town in the northeast of Victoria. Um, my my immediate family and my, my greater family um, are all just fantastic, hardworking people who, um, you know, uh, I, I'm blessed to have had such um, great people around me uh, to have taught me, you know, what is right and wrong. My, my, my parents never, ever pushed me into sport but they certainly supported me the whole time. And I had my mother and father would be driving me to races around Victoria every, every weekend. And I'm sure they had better things to do, but um, that's what they did. Father was uh, a state champion cyclist, but he, it's never something that he pushed me to do. Um, and I think cycling being so hard, um, I don't think it's actually possible to, to reach the highest sort of um, the highest level of the sport through someone pushing you or, or, or your, your father trying to live his life through you. It is so hard that you have to desperately want it yourself or else it's just not going to happen. So, so just on that, what were your good traits then? So we'll get to the physical gifts that you had later on, but what of the mental? Was it persistence? Was it determination? Did you have a stubbornness in you that you were going to make it to hell or high water? Well, I've got from across the top of my shoulders, I've got... Uh, tattooed driven and uh, from from a very young age I was uh, very headstrong and I loved to win I was obviously just by chance uh, physiologically gifted in uh, in that I had a huge VO2 max I had a high pain tolerance and I um, you know was prepared to put it all on the line to win a race none of that matters if if you um, if if you can't uh, you don't have the race IQ to win races but um I, I was I was a I was a problem child I guess you would say I had uh, far too much energy I can only imagine what um, what sort of trouble I would have got into had I not been training every single day like rain hail or shine every single day of the year from the age of eleven or twelve um, the amount of energy that I still had to burn and still had uh, to get myself into trouble was um, was quite amazing so I think. Uh, my parents and and I are blessed that I found some some outlet to um to let some of my energy loose. You found an outlet, but you found someone too, didn't you? There was a crit a criterium in Wangaratta, and you were spotted by someone there who I think would go on to shape your journey in cycling. What was his name? Barry Burns. Barry Burns is a, a very special friend of mine, and uh, and we, was my coach when I was younger. He's a uh, he was a, he's a Vietnam vet. He went uh, he fought in Vietnam and he came, he came to cycling very late. Uh, you know, in his late thirties, he, he discovered cycling and um, he sort of used cycling and the and the de- dedication uh, needed for the sport as kind of therapy f- to help himself get over what he'd gone through in Vietnam. Very very well versed on training techniques and and more than anything mental attitude and mental preparation for the races and, and that's something that he really taught me 
um, I, well, he would he would train me. He, I, I would still use some of the training methods that he would use when I was 15 or 14. When I was right, racing the Tour de France, I would still I would still do a lot of the training sessions that he he taught me when I was younger. But more than anything, he taught me that you know mental attitude, mental toughness, and and just having that killer instinct is the the number one thing you need. And he, and he was a he was a he had, he had that as well. He won the Australian. Uh, mountain championship and he and he won the melbourne to warnable as a 40 year old man for the, my last two years of school um i moved to wangaratta and lived with barry and his wife marilyn and you know when i say you know sort of military discipline it was actually military discipline you know we're up at five we're on the ergo we're doing this training before school sometimes it was gym sessions at my lunch break at school and then as, as quick as I could get home after to school, we're back on the bike and he'd be motor pacing me or would be doing certain training sessions. So it was most days it was double sessions. It was very, very hard. However, to me, there was no choice because I had one, one dream in life, one goal from the age of 11. I didn't want to be an astronaut. I didn't want to be a movie star. I didn't want to be the prime minister of Australia. I wanted to go to Europe race the Tour de France and live over there. And basically exactly what the first half of my life I did was my childhood dream. What a great person to have in your corner. And and he harnessed that, I guess, didn't he? Everything good in you, he harnessed. So you got the AIS scholarship as well, I think, 97. And then the other place you cut your teeth. Now, a lot of people listening will be familiar with this and can relate to this. The sporting carnivals on the track are the stuff of legend in the country, aren't they? And you cut your teeth here. So Wangaratta Wheel Race, Bendigo Madison, all over the place where you'd you'd bump uh, shoulders and elbows with some pretty big names on the track. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I... I first I went to the the AIS on the track. Um, they they identified me. Basically, they just um, they saw some of my lab results um, when I, I was doing some testing with the VIS, where I was putting out eighty six and eighty seven VO two maxes, which is if you know um, that's about basically the uh, the uh, uh, way of measuring your engine basically, and that's uh, fairly high it's very high and um and basically they signed me off that and i always wanted to be a road rider that was my end game i raced the road and the track and i think a lot of my skills that um helped me in the tour de france where, where it's extremely hectic in those final kilometers uh when you've got 200 blokes going down a skinny road trying to get in and out of trouble if you take me back to my years racing on on the track and racing against the likes of Stephen Pate and guys like that, yeah, you have to learn very quickly, and and yeah, and your skills have to be on point, or else you're on you're on your on the floor sliding up and banging into the fence. So that that was a lot of fun, and um, and the, the other thing is, if if you go to a, a track carnival, you might have six races in a day, so that's six times you get to practice trying to win a race or trying different tactics. So, hmm. um. When you, I get when I got to Europe, and I found that I was a lot sharper in with in my tactics than the Europeans. The Europeans were generally stronger because they they race at such a high level. But when it came down to tactics, uh, I had had uh, all these years racing on the track and having multiple opportunities to fine tune my tactics, 
So I felt like I had a bit of a, an advantage there. Let's talk about that move to Europe after this break. This is your journey. It's brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. You can catch them online at tobinbrothers.com.au. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. We're with decorated former cyclist Baden Cook. So, Baden, you signed initially with American team Mercury and you won a stack of races in the 18 months with them. But I wanted to ask FDJ, Francis Dejeur, the big French team you mentioned earlier, were they always going to take you or did your two wins at the Tour de Lavenir in 2001 convince them and the, and the 18 months you had with Mercury? I'd had a year out with injury. I'd, I'd hurt my Achilles tendon and, and it looked like it looked like my dream of turning pro was going to be in February 2000. I went to the report tour, which was um, there was half pros. There was Francis Azure were there, T Mobile, Jan Uric was there. Um, there was about seven big time pro teams, and I was in a just a, a thrown together Australian composite amateur team. Um, you know, basically sent there to be crucified by the, the big boys. Brad McGee at the time was writing for Le Francis de Jure. He'd just signed. And I said I said to him, tell them to watch me and tell them I'm coming. <laughs> and so he, he did. And I'm fresh off a year off. So I basically got, no, I don't even know how I had the hide to say that. But anyway, we came to it. There was a, a big crosswind stage where there was about 10 of us left and I'm there with Jan Uri and eight other top-level pros and I'm this nobody little kid um, from Benalla who's an amateur. Anyway, I, I hit the McKay to go and won the stage and um, and Francis Azur immediately came up to me and said, oh, we, we really want to sign you. Uh, we, we've been told to look at look at you and, and now we want to sign you. And I said, good, I want to start right now. And, and they said, well, that's not how it works. You, you're not, you, you sign someone for the 1st of January, so we'll sign you for next year. And I said, well, I'm fairly impatient. I said, no, no, I want to sign now. And they, and they said, that's not... A thing you don't sign mid-year, so it's 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 it has happened before, but that's not quite how it works. And I said, oh well, um, you know, if if I don't have a contract by you know, end of the year, I'll I'll come, I guess. But I didn't make any commitments. Next thing, uh, a big team called Farm Fritz, they approached me as well, and again I said I want to sign now, and they they had agreed to um, make a special sort of allowance and sign me on the 1st of July or something like that. And then uh, the next thing that I know, I got a, a phone call from Hank Vogels, who's a longtime friend of mine who was riding for a Division Two team in America called Mercury. Basically, they'd been watching me and that they were on the way up and um, and they said, we're ready to, to sign you today uh, if you're ready to go. And I said, done. So, you know, I've turned down two Division One teams um, to go to a Division Two team because I was so impatient. And as it turned out, it turned out very well because um, in, in this next 18 months that I spent with them, mm. Uh, they, they they went Division One the next year, and I, I think I won 22 races in the first year or first 18 months that I was with them, which is uh, sort of not. I've never heard of anyone else doing that. They weren't all they weren't at the top level, but there was there was big races in Europe as well as in America and Australia. And then and that's when when that 
contract ran out, that's when Francis de Gere were really interested. So they went from being pretty keen to saying, right, tell us what, what you want and let's do it. I also had um, the, the number one and two team in the teams in the world, which was Mappe and uh, T-Mobile, uh, wanting to sign me as well. So they were number one and two. And La France de Jure was probably number 18 out of 18 in the first division. But I, you know, most kids would sort of go, oh, you know, if I got the chance to sign for Real Madrid or Barcelona or one of the more lowly teams, if, if, we, if we were to compare it to soccer, they would go for the big team. But I... I figured pretty quickly that uh, if I wanted to fast track myself to be in the Tour de France, um, in those bigger teams, I would have no chance of making the Tour de France team. And if I did, like just say I signed for T-Mobile, on the off chance I got to start at the Tour de France, I would have been there as Eric Zabel's lead out man, not not riding riding for myself. So I made a calculated decision to 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 sign with the last the, the very last team in the first division uh under one proviso and that was that that i got to ride the tour de france straight away which they agreed to <laughs> you t- yeah you in fact told them you'd only sign if they took you to the tour in 02 i mean you, you you're a young fellow you're already throwing out the orders i love it and yet you were vindicated because you explode on the scene fourth in the green jersey obviously in your debut tour that we touched on you get a fourth in a stage a third and a second. So it's it's a crazy start to the career. Uh, so they agreed to let me do a couple of weeks of the tour and see how it goes. Um, you know, they have been known to sort of say, we'll let you do a couple of weeks, then we'll pull you out of the race just so you've got a, a feel for it. And hmm. then next year we'll uh, have a go. But I agreed to that, but there was no way I was ever pulling out. And that's and that's what happened. And, and, and not only did I not pull out, I didn't just handle it. You know, on, on the very last stage, I got second. So I, I was... I was handling it very well and from from that day um the last stage of the tour in 2002 i would go to bed every single night what i just thought i was just daydreaming or or just visualizing how i was going to win the grand jersey the next year so you're at the biggest race in the world finally with the best cyclists in the best form they'll be in that year but this was also now that we know we we call the epo era if you like so drug taking rife in the sport at this time what was your level of exposure like to that at around this time well i mean everyone knew it was going on i, I even before i turned pro i i had heard all the stories um i think i think no one no one that was close to the sport was uh naive enough to think it w- wasn't happening i was very fortunate in that um in in the 1999 festina affair um the 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 team i ended up signing for was actually em- embroiled in in that behavior uh and they got caught caught up doing it this is before i joined the team and they had um taken a their sponsor had basically said to them if this if this sort of behavior ever happens again we'll pull the plug if it doesn't happen again we will sponsor this team indefinitely and that team still exists today Mm -hmm. so basically half the teams went fully anti-doping and clean and half just got sneakier and and so the team that i signed for at the time um as far as when i was on the team were 100 percent anti-doping they wouldn't just say don't dope they would say if we even think you're doping you're out probably six teams at that time that i knew i believe were not just doping they were systematically doping the riders and history has has proven that to be the case all I can say is the teams that I rode for, just by chance, just by luck, uh, were completely mm. anti-doping. We used to make a joke uh, in our team, Armstrong's doctor 
was called Dr. Ferrari. And we, we used to um we used to joke that our doctor was called Dr. Fiat Panda. <laughs> <laughs> like a, a Fiat Panda is like the tiniest little four cylinder hunk of junk car that you can find in uh in Europe. Well the, the Fiat Panda could rev up. Don't worry about that. Oh, how do you explain to people unfamiliar with cycling what it takes to win a sprint at this level? So there's all the physical traits needed and the speed and the power and a precious few in the world can hold that sort of power. But there's also a precious few in the world that are willing to put themselves in positions that could easily see them in hospital that night. Now, you had your fair share of prangs, and one obviously stands out above all the others. I want to take you to the Giro d'Italia of 2005, perhaps the most famous for you. You were destined to win this stage, and you were going to when Paolo Bettini, the Italian, put you into the barriers at God knows what speed. He even went on to protest his innocence. This was a low point for you in your career, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it was for a number of reasons. It was 2005. I'd won the green jersey in 2003 and signed a signed a big fat contract for for three years and um, even though I'd still been winning my five or six races a year which was still more than most people and even more than anyone else in my team at the time because I'd set the bar so high previously it sort of seemed like I was uh not going well but I was only not going well compared to my myself so this this sort of this stage uh, this this moment I, I really got myself into some really amazing form and finally I was going to win a, another grand, grand tour stage and sort of just remind everyone what I was capable of and then um, sure enough and Paolo Bettini double world champion Olympic champion uh, he's sort of hit the, hit out in the sprint a bit too early and I had I had him well covered and uh, basically came along beside him he did a bit of a he moved over which is a normal procedure I mean I just kept the hammer down expecting that he would realise. Well, most people knew that I don't back off and I don't get scared. If I'm going through a gap, I'm going through whether you're going to let me through or not. And um, he uh, didn't believe that I would keep going without breaking and he pushed me all the way to the barrier and hit the barrier and went, you know, went over and crashed and, and lost the stage. He was rele- relegated, but that made no difference to me because I, I walked across the line in like a hundred spot. It's a, it's a real shame because I, mm. I, I had it one. It, it was basically mine, but it's not it's not on my Palmares and it's not in my uh, you know, next to my name in the, in the record books. And it's a it's a bit, real shame. There's another famous photo of him seemingly pleading, and you've turned away to storm off, uh, giving him no time at all. You must have wanted to drop him though. When I fell off, I just I left my bike there on the side of the road. I didn't even I just stood up and I started walking straight to the finish line with the intention to flattening flattening his nose completely across his face and. Um, and I, that's all I thought about. I just thought this person just has stolen uh, a stage of the, the Tour of Italy from me because he knew I was going to beat him. I was about to flatten him. When I got to him, I just saw a wall of photographers behind him and, and, and video cameras and all the media were just waiting for me to do something. Or they were waiting for every everyone knew what I was going to do. And even my, um, my team boss, in, who was watching from France, watching from Paris he was like he told me he was at the screen just praying that I didn't punch him and and then I sort of had a moment of clarity and I thought if I if I give him what he deserves right now we're only you know within six or seven weeks out from the Tour de France I'll probably be suspended at the time and I won't be able to ride the tour told him a few things what I thought about him and then just kept on walking as it turned out that year at the Tour de France I went like rubbish and um I probably would have uh, been better off to have flattened, flattened him, been suspended and missed the tour. We're talking to Baden Cook on This Is Your Journey. It's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. We'll be back with Baden on the other side of this. 
You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have you company here on This Is Your Journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. And Baden Cook has been our guest today. Baden, before the break, we are talking about the positions that uh, you used to put yourself in in your line of work, which was pretty dangerous. But also, what about the conditions you put yourself in, given these are natural sporting amphitheatres? You know, there's no roof, no turnstiles, no stands. It, the coldest you've been, I wanted to ask, was it, was it the infamous... Milan San Remo of 2013, which was paused and then shortened due to the Arctic snowstorm that hit, or does something else jump out? I think that that's the coldest I've ever been. It was just ridiculous how cold it was. This is absolute like life and death for cold. Like it was, it's ridiculous. Like there's people that were fully dressed, getting hypothermia, like who are you know just doing their job. And and in cycling, there's just basically it's just suck it up. It's it's a hard man sport. If you don't like it go home and and even even despite how ridiculously hard and, and agonizing that was i would still l- look at someone who pulled out and say oh he's he's soft as butter that guy <laughs> um hang on hang on <laughs> hang on because this is a famous day in cycling now it, as i said there was an intermission the race was paused for a time and they had to adjust the route so i think you're with orica green edge at the time you come back to the team bus can you tell me because there's an infamous glove episode there when it came to yeah. removing the gloves so basically the bunch was it was so cold and so much snow that the bunch wasn't even riding together people were just riding in ones and twos because you couldn't see where you're going and i had my sunglasses upside down just like trying to stop the 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 stuff coming off the wheel in front of me and for some reason i could see over the top of them a bit better but yeah and they were full full with ice and my whole helmet was full of ice and matt goss and i got back to so they had to they had to stop the race because there was the mountain pass that we went over from um before before we went sort of from the milan side over onto the coast at genoa um it was it was not passable but it was too much ice on the road so we had to stop and get in the bus it gave us about an hour and a half to have a shower and eat and then redress and then we'll start that and restart the race on the coast road. And I got into the bus like shaking, like you yeah, never been so cold in my life. And it was quite warm in there. And Matt Goss, my teammate, he pulled off one glove and then he pulled off the other glove and just started screaming and howling and rolling around the floor. It was like it's like someone had um like chop one of his fingers off. And I'm like, what the hell's wrong with you? And he's just like, ah, he's screaming. He, he couldn't verbalize what was happening. And I, start, I started sort of taking the piss out of him, telling him to harden up. And uh, and then next thing I take my second glove off and my, my as soon as the my hand hit the, the warm air in the bus, I don't know what this phenomenon is, but, just hitting the hot air, hot air in the bus, it felt like I was getting hit by a blowtorch, and and my hand was on fire, and it was just absolutely, um, absolutely the most painful thing I could ever think of. So they had, I basically had to get in the shower uh, with it on cold, and basically undress myself in a cold shower and just slightly turn it up, or else it was too painful because our bodies were so cold. 
Unbelievable. It is a, it's not all glamorous. In fact, for the vast majority of the time, it isn't a glamorous sport, is it? And that's what you're coming back to. You've got to be, you've got to be all in. Um, I wanted to ask, post-career, you got into rider management. Um, you also had a, a stake in a bike company, some wheels. What keeps you busy these days, though, Baden? What are you into? Um, yeah, we, we, I, we had uh, Factor Bikes until a year ago. I was uh, uh, one of the founders of Factor Bikes, which we, we sold, and uh, they're going very well. They've got a team in the Tour de France. I still do manage um, so, a couple of Tour de France-level riders. Just recently, I've got into um, – I've always been into property all throughout my um, – my cycling career i owned a number of properties i did a few small developments and it's always my, my dad my father was a builder and um through some good friends of mine i've got into um it's called S- sda living and uh we're, we're doing sort of house and land packages that are specifically made for disabled people and um and the it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a government program it's a government government initiative that basically They've got. They've contributed. I think twenty-two billion dollars a year for for regular investors to to be able to come in and invest in these house and land packages, which are uh, sort of guaranteed really high returns, up to sixteen percent returns paid by the government. And on and you and you're sort of giving back a bit. You, you, you're helping out um, disabled people that would otherwise be, who knows, stuck in their in their parents. You know garage or, or whatever you know, there's, there's, there's so many people that aren't housed properly housed properly who are who are disabled mm. and this initiative this initiative is great we've got a concierge service that basically takes you through the whole step so it's a it's a great investment i mean 15 16 return in anyone's book is, is is great but you're also helping you know you're, you're helping um disabled people live a better life so basically i started I looked into it um, through a friend for myself to invest. And the more I sort of uh, tried to poke holes in the scheme and, and, and fight, you know, I sort of thought there must be a catch here or there. I, you know, I, I started out by trying to uh, get to the bottom of it for my own self to invest in. Once I've realized that this, this scheme is so great and it's a, it's a great cause as well. I've uh, started working alongside these guys at, a, at SDA living and um, I'm really enjoying it. Now, there's one other thing you did in retirement that I didn't mention. I overlooked. I don't know how I did. But you became a reality TV star. You appeared on Survivor, Brains v. Braun. And it was only last year. How on earth did that come about? Um, well, I'm, I'm mates with Matt Rogers, uh, the, the ex-Wallaby, who um, he, he, had, he had been on it twice. And I just sort of mentioned to him one time that, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be mind having a look into it. And he spoke with the with the executive directors, who promptly flew me to Sydney to have a face to face, and uh, and, we, and we sort of agreed that I, I'd go on the show. Um, you know, I must. I'm, a lot of people think uh, it's a bit of a. So many, so many people think that behind the scenes we're getting extra luxuries, or it's not that hard. I would say, if anything, it's actually hard. If you saw what happened behind the scenes, it is actually harder than what you see. And, you ended um, up in, didn't you so end up in hospital? I ha- ended up in hospital afterwards. Yeah, afterwards uh, with uh, an infection. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, I, I got I got a staph infection um, um, just right after it. But um, but I, I did I, I I ruined my shoulder. My shoulder is still still this day not working properly from a. Uh, trying to light the fire with, with the sticks. But, um, yeah, that's I, I take my hat off to, because, um, you know, there was there was a few ex-sporting stars on the show like uh, Gavin Wanganeen and, and 
myself and, and there's a few other um, really elite sport, ex-sports people on there. But I think in actual fact, some, some of the toughest nuts on the show mentally were, were the regular people who just, that was their lifelong dream and they were, they were as tough as nails. And, uh, you know, I, I, I had to dig very, very deep mentally to, um, to, to push through as far as I, I did. And, uh, it is the real deal. You know, I, I lasted 31 days and, uh, the guys that went, I think it was 46 was the, the La final two. You know, it was, I was well and truly over it by the time I got, um, uh, booted out. But, uh, the, the other guys that went the distance, it's really, uh, a testament to how strong you're, you're um, just, and just normal people, uh, you know, can be when they, when they really want something, they're, they're, they're amazing. Baden, thanks so much for joining us today. I mean, what a career you had, mate. The green jersey hogs the headlines, but you consistently won races right throughout your career. You were brave on the bike. You were ruthless in the sprints, and you left it all out there. So well done on everything you achieved, and, and thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Jump online to find them at tobinbrothers.com.au, and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91